There we go. Okay, we're recording. So welcome to all of you for the first in this series of summer presentations from our visiting scholars. All of our visiting scholars this summer are actually folks who received their fellowships last year, but couldn't come last year because we were under lockdown. So uh, we're delighted to have them this time around for these weeks, and it's been wonderful to have them here. Two of our scholars are presenting today. I'm going to introduce them immediately one after the other, then they will speak in turn. Our first presenter today is this year's Meter Center Faculty Fellowship recipient, Professor Amanda Urich. She is Professor of History at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, where she has taught since 1986. She's the author of numerous articles and book chapters on various aspects of the Reformation in France. Her first monograph, The Economics of Power, the Private Finances of the House of Foy Navarre Albret during the Wars of Religion, was published by 16th Century Press. She is currently working on a book project on the life and career of Jean de Cora. And indeed, her presentation to us today will focus on some aspects of that research. Her presentation is titled Cora Undercover. Rage and Resistance in the French Wars of Religion. Amanda, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Our second presenter is Dr. Preston Hill, and he is a very recently minted PhD. We're very excited. Uh, he has uh, recently obtained his PhD, had his Viva passed, everything is great. Uh, his PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he was a student of Professor Alan Torrance. He is a recipient of the 2020 Meter Center Student Fellowship. And we're delighted to have him here with us. His presentation this afternoon highlights some of the themes from his recent and ongoing work. And his presentation is titled, The Death of the Soul, Christ's Descent into Hell in the Thought of Calvin, Lefebvre, and Cusa. So we will start with Amanda. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for being here. Um, it really is a pleasure to have an opportunity to present the work that I've been um, engaging in while I'm here at the Meter Center. And of course, I do want to thank the Meter Center and the Meter Center donors for continuing these fellowships and for agreeing to postpone them uh, during COVID. So after a year of pandemic living and learning um, uh, without a library and sometimes without access to my um, office, you know, it's just been a marvel to be in a library that, of course, is especially geared to those of us who uh, love uh, the 16th century. And it really, for me, has been kind of a moment of restoration and, um, and productivity. So I, I want to thank especially uh, Kareen and Paul and, and Deborah, and also Sam, who is a seminary student who has sometimes been my keeper, my custodian, uh, when I've been here working in the afternoons and Sam and I are, are um, uh, uh, the, the kind of lone researchers working in the Meter Center as uh, the library undergoes construction. So, so many of you um, are, who are here already know about the kind of larger project um, uh, that I'm, I'm working on, the life and letters of Jean de Carras. Uh, a celebrated French uh, jurist and member of the sovereign uh, royal court or parliament of Toulouse. And the, the project as I conceived it, uses his private correspondence and letters writ large as a framing device to explore the epistolary cultures of the 16th century, uh, the radicalization of religious identities, uh, religious war and the, the consequent practice of peacemaking and the impact of law, war on family life and, and personal relationships, emotional intimacy. 
So, to, you know, the 16th century jurist Carras is largely known to Anglophone audiences as the judge who presided over a notorious uh, case of identity theft that seized the imagination of celebrated writers such as Michel de Montaigne. In real life, Carras himself was playing a double game, just like the peasant Pancette, who briefly managed to steal the wife, the family, the property of a companion in arms, Martin Guerre. Um, he was uh, publicly uh, the, an agent of the state uh, whose job was to be custodian of the, 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 the laws of the Kingdom of France. Uh, but privately in the 1550s, he converted to Protestantism. In 1568, Caraz was expelled from office along with seven of his Protestant co-religionaries, all deemed guilty of heresy and treason and condemned to death in absentia. In exile, Carras joined the service of Jean d'Albret, titular head of the militant Protestant party in France as her chancellor and superintendent of finance, where he oversaw the funding of the Protestant insurgency and its armies in the field. And he also began at that time honing his skills as a Protestant propagandist, publishing two highly inflammatory works which situate Carras among the earliest proponents of Huguenot resistance theory, that is, you know, that growing body of works emanating from Protestant authors that defended the right of subjects to resist or to rebel against authorities deemed tyrannical, especially the king. Now today I'm gonna to focus mostly on uh, the, the, the second work that he, he publishes. It appears in 1569 and then it is republished again in 1570. It is entitled A Political Question. Is it legitimate for subjects to negotiate with their prince? And in this work, Carras develops a highly original challenge to the established conventions of royal power and authority that finds reverberations in Theodore, in, in Theodore Beza's Du droit des magistrats sur le sujet, right, the right of magistrates over their subjects, and the work of other so-called resistance theorists. So thinking through the substance of Carras' argument and possible connections to the emergent literature of Protestant resistance has been the greater part of my work at the Meter Center. So I'd like to preface you know, my discussion of this text with some observations about the world of clandestine print um, and publication. You know, it's clear from Carras correspondence that by November of 1568, he had joined uh, Jean d'Albret in the Atlantic port city of La Rochelle, which served as kind of command central for the Protestant um, party from 1568 to 1571. And in La Rochelle, he was extremely busy carrying out the task of, you know, drumming up monies from various sources uh, to kind of fund the Protestant insurgency. But he was also working in close collaboration with a Rochelet printer named Bertelemy Berton to bring to fruition two manuscripts, both published under deep cover. Right? Both were published anonymously. In the first instance, uh, a pamphlet entitled, lovely 16th century title, The Iniquities, Abuses, Nullities, Injustices, Oppressions, and Tyrannies of the Decree by the Parliament of Toulouse against the Counselors of Religion, seized with self-righteous rage and indignation. And still nursing wounds from his humiliating expulsion from public office, John Serojean seizes the opportunity to settle old scores against longtime rivals in the Parliament of Toulouse, penning a very bitter denunciation of the treatment he and his co-religionaries received at the hands of their colleagues. Um, 
this pamphlet is, I think, particularly interesting because although it was published anonymously, um, Jean used the opportunity to kind of strike a blow at some of his enemies in Toulouse and the title page itself. So there's a kind of, uh, purportedly this is published by one of the most ardent Catholic um, printers in Toulouse. Um, and uh, it purports to come with an authorization, a privilege from the Parliament of Toulouse, no less. Right? The, the second pamphlet, the question or treatise question politique uh, was, you know, also published, it appears, um, in 1569 for the kind of first time. Uh, again, uh, there is no indication kind of of the author or printer, um, although the place of publication, Poitiers, was almost certainly Toulouse, I mean, uh, um, uh, La Rochelle is indicated, along with an intriguing tag uh, that we find uh, uh, on a lot of the pamphlets published by Bertone in the 15, late 1560s and 1570s, newly printed, okay? Um, you know, Carras' decision, um, after affixing his name to so many treatises, to suddenly kind of go underground, this deliberate act of concealment, I think, is another sign that his formal association with Jean Delbray and the militant wing of the Huguenot party had forever altered the trajectory of his legal and literary career. And although different in style and substance, both texts shared a similar objective to legitimate the actions of the Protestant insurgency and its agents. Right, driven, driven underground by tyrannical authorities to take up arms in defense right, of freedom of conscience. Now, both texts, as I suggested, circulated independently at first, but in 1570, they're united in a massive compendium of Huguenot polemical works entitled The History of Our Times, L'Histoire de nos Petons, um, that is attributed to two fictitious printers, um, Christophe Landré and C. Uh, Martel. Uh, almost certainly, this work was also the um, this this compendium was also the work of Bartholomew Bertrand. And and one of the, the exciting things for me about my research here at the Meter Center um, is that I finally was able to locate, not at the center itself, but online, a recently digitized copy, you know, of this massive kind kind of compendium, a truncated version. Uh, from the British Library. And in the 1570 collection, it's clear that these two texts are printed kind of right in the middle of, um, uh, of, of the volume um, together, separated by a couple of sonnets that describe uh, portentous or prophetic portents over the palais, that is the parliament of Toulouse. And I think this, these were you know, poems that were probably also uh, penned by Carras. Um, a nasty, nasty little Philippics on the corruption um, of the courts and its counselors. Okay, so today I really want to focus on uh, the the larger, more studied work of, of political philosophy entitled um, "A Political Question," and Carras' central argument or assertion that subjects can and should claim the right to negotiate, or the word he uses is capitulate with their sovereign. The word capitule appears in various declensions over 50 times in the text, always singled out in italics. Capitule, Carras writes in the introduction, conveys nothing more than, and here I'm quoting, to transact, con contract, 
negotiate, or other words of similar meaning. And it finds its origins in dealings in which there are several articles or chapters on which parties agree. Thus, from the very beginning, the renowned Toulousan jurist normalizes a word that he suggests has been wrongly assigned negative and subversive connotations in popular discourse. To accuse subjects of les majestés or treason, who demand the right to negotiate with the king, he goes on to argue, represents a profound misreading of social reality, historical precedent, and natural law. Now, as Karak contends, kings negotiate with various subjects as a matter of course, routinely signing contracts with administrators who maintain their princely domains with artisans, masons, carpenters, architects, who build and maintain their princely residences. And here I'm quoting, he writes, they buy and sell, contract marriage, and even engage in litigious negotiations, procès et différents, with their subjects. To say then, that subjects cannot capitulate, negotiate with their prince, ignores the quotidian duties of kingship. Moreover, to suggest that a prince should not negotiate with subjects ignores the imperatives of true leadership. Suppressing interactions essential to the proper, proper governance of the kingdom. As Kara asserts, here I'm quoting again, if a prince does not communicate daily with those he governs and rules, if he does not understand the actions, mores, and policing, of his kingdom, if he does not consult with those of all estates on which the Republic is composed, he cannot properly administer the state. Kara posits the isolation that inevitably follows as a deep social rupture against the natural order, one that deprives subjects of, quote again, participating in the life and humanity of their prince and equally the king of the services that he receives from his subjects, end quote. And he goes on to suggest that those with great wealth and authority and the consequent responsibilities that come with it should expect to engage in more frequent negotiations than their inferiors. So Kara's opening fashions a treat his treatise as a modest proposal I want to argue focusing on peacemaking at a time when most of the pamphlets issuing from Berton's press were much more stridently militant, justifying la prise des armes, right, the taking up of arms, and the resumption of hostilities otherwise known as the Third Religious War. Of course, what he goes on to say is really subversive. In the succeeding pages, of the text, Kara introduces a number of arguments that scholars have associated with the more famous resistance theorists of the 1570s and 1580s, Opman, Beza, and Duplessis Mornay. We find evocations of the primeval pact between the king and his subject that is reciprocal and mirrors the alliance between God and his creation. The elective monarchy and conditional obedience owed by subjects. The key role played by representative institutions and lesser magistrates in restraining the excesses of royal power. The origin myths is integral to Huguenot resistance theory are all present in question politique, a political question, although Carras is the only writer who dares to suggest that human beings in the original state of nature were equal. With question politique, Karas is fundamentally recasting the paradigms of governance and monarchical authority. But he is also speaking to a specific political moment. As Karas took up his pen 
In the fall of 1568, he and fellow members of the Huguenot party were still reeling from the consequences of the Edict of Saint-Maur, promulgated by Charles IX in September 1568. Surrounded by the most ardently Catholic members of his Privy Council, Charles had summarily revoked all of the previous edicts of pacification, including the most recent Edict of Longjumeau of 1568. These were all edicts that had granted some measure of religious freedom to the reform community in France. The September edict was followed by a second decree depriving any official advancing Protestant sympathies of their post. And that certainly must have struck even closer to home. With one swift stroke, the young monarch reestablished Catholicism as the sole religion of France and nullified seven years of peacemaking. It was a stunning volte face from a sovereign faced, who had faced down his royal courts or parliaments when they refused to register his early edicts of pacification, most notably in 1563 as a fresh-faced adolescent of 13. But what was especially chilling for Huguenots was the fact that the Edict of Saint-Maur was positioned as the first formal expression of a king who had finally reached legal maturity after assuming the throne at the tender age of 10. Charles's transition from a boy king to adult monarch in full possession of his regalian authority is one of the central narratives around which the edict is framed. Now, this is a, a legal fiction. I mean, the text glosses over the fact that Charles had actually, at the age of 14 in 1564, right, become um, king in his own right. But this fiction supports Right, the contention in the edict, right, that the peacemaking process was null and void during the first two religious wars by contending that Charles's minority thwarted any true expression of the king's will. The concessions granted to the Huguenots, the edict declares, were only a function of the king's minority, vasage, and his desire for peace violating his true will and true faith since, and here I'm quoting, we have always harbored in our heart the true religion like all devoted Christians must, and we are resolved to live and die in it. And I think this is the crucial phrase, having this hour reached the age, understanding and judgment sufficient to govern ourselves. Moreover, the age asserts that the, our agreements that Huguenots, lead, Huguenots had wrested from him were rooted in, again, and here I quote, a contempt for his young age, which in turn encouraged Huguenots, here quoting, to negotiate with him as neighborly relations and not as obedient subjects that they declare themselves to be by their mouths and by their writings, end quote. So Carras' question politique is a direct riposte, I think, to the Edict of Saint-Maur, and I'm not the only one to say this. And I think it also should be seen as a prologue to the, peace, prologue to the peacemaking that would inevitably follow the taking up of arms. In fact, for Carras to use the term capitule is an intentional reference to the structure of peacemaking, specifically the various capituli, right, chapters or clauses into which the Edicts of Pacification were divided stipulating the specific details of the agreement that had been reached by the belligerent parties. The Edict of Samoa laid bare the unreliability of the peacemaking process, which Huguenot theorists from Carras onward would work to formalize or concretize, attempting to bind monarchs to their promises by conferring a contractual value upon the Edicts of Pacification 
suggesting they could not be unilaterally revoked without serious consequences. As a professor of law and a jurist, Karas had written extensively about contracts between private individuals, arguing, for example, that debtors and later buyers and sellers could be forced by law to fulfill their agreements. The debtor, he wrote in one of his many legal treatises, and here I'm quoting, can be specifically compelled insofar as he is capable of performing whether these obligations are to give over which there is no controversy or to do or to restore or to hand over. And there is nothing that corresponds more to good faith than that it is performed, what is agreed upon between the two contracting parties. So here, Kara is insisting upon the performative element of contract law. And I would argue that he goes on later to suggest that performance is integral to peacemaking too. I mean, it's one thing for a king to sign a decree into law, it's another thing to implement it. And a durable peace cannot be established unless the stipulations contained in the treaty are implemented. Those of us who study the wars of religion, the wars of the, of the 16th century know, and, and other civil wars, um, that, that implementation is always the sticking point. Okay? In question politique, Kara deploys then the same principles of engagement that he had applied to private parties, now to public authorities, using the vocabulary of contract law to suggest that edicts of pacification had the transcendent force of natural law, and as such were impervious to inevitable shifts in royal policy advisors or even a king's passing fancy, and more importantly, subject to the judgment of God and men. Any unilateral draw by one of the signatories was a demonstrable sign of bad faith. So such an argument implies that obedience to a monarch was conditional. And like later Huguenot, um, Monarchomax, a resistance theorist, Carras marshaled historical precedents, albeit a largely mythical past where early Frankish kings were elected by popular acclamation. They confirmed their election by a coronation oath. The coronation oath bound them to fulfill certain promises upon which a subject's obedience was conditioned. And Kara addresses this in a paragraph where he writes that this election was accompanied by multiple responsibilities, negotiated with them, that is the subjects, such as that they would protect their subjects, preserve them from all oppression, give them justice, and similar articles containing reciprocal obligations one toward another. Of course, the emphasis is always in this text on the king's obligation toward his, towards his subjects. Kara also points to the emergence of three institutions, broadly constituting populist sovereignty or magistral authority that historically had checked the egregious expansion of royal power and private interest in France, the Estates General, the sovereign courts or parliaments in which he had served, and the Council of Peers. And in a long passage, he goes into considerable detail how over the past centuries, all of these bodies have fallen into disuetude. Everywhere else they're flourishing, but in France, they're barely existence. And in failing to consult his traditional, these traditional advisory bodies, Kura writes, Charles IX risks the mistake, risks repeating, excuse me, the stake of his Merovingian ancestors were eventually deposed too by greedy overweening private counselors, that is those mayors of the palace that we all know about. 
In one of the most powerful images in the treatise, Kara describes the dangerous devolution of royal governance to private interests. Increasingly, he writes, decisions are, and here I'm quoting, made in private chambers, in corners by a crackling hearth, or in bedrooms, and he uses the term ruelle de lit, right? These spaces where women and sometimes men received friends for conversations, but certainly not matters of state. The text goes on to depict these as feminized spaces, people by, quote, a cluster of women, children and priests, devoid of princes, chancellors, marshals, or other venerable and serious chevaliers and counselors, and indeed without the seal, will, and consent of the king to whom are brought pre-digested resolutions. So here, private spaces become a code for the, the, the private privatization of public authority and the effeminization of royal power, um, prefiguring not only later resistance theses um, uh, or, or resistance theory, but also 18th century discourse on the decadence and corruption of the Bourbon monarchy. Carras takes pains to divest Charles from any conscious responsibility for the state of affairs in France, laying the blame squarely and repeatedly upon malevolent Machiavellian advisors who surround the king and pervert the monarchy. To do so, however, he has to depict the king as weak given over to his sensual desires, sensualité, and the licentious persuasions of flatterers and sycophants. Elsewhere, he describes the king as being, quote, kept in, buried in ignorance as the old mayors of the palace, hoping one day to deprive him of the kingdom, ruin poor old stupid children, end quote. In the last paragraph of the treatise, the transformation is complete as Corral presents Charles IX as a king who no longer submits to reason or discipline, demonstrates no longer demonstrates compassion for his family, the state, or his subjects. Much like the croix fainéant, or literally do-nothing kings of the last Merovingian, Carras complains that the king, quote, no longer orders anything, consults anything, registers anything, because all of the administration of the kingdom passes through, through the advice of an unhinged crazy. Since the subjects of the king can no longer negotiate with their king. They are forced to negotiate for him to observe the crown and the state. Carras' text is steeped in visceral hatred for the Guises, that great aristocratic family that Protestants, right, um, and Protestant minds at least had, had monopolized power uh, through the 1560s, and especially uh, for the Cardinal of Lorraine, Charles of Guise. Carras never actually names Lorraine outright. He dubs him Arpenurge after the crafty libertine in Rabelais' Gargantuan Pantagruel, as we've seen as an unhinged crazy, but he most frequently refers to him as le paradoxeur, the paradoxer, who perpetuates the big lie that kings, quote, do not negotiate with their subjects and that doing so makes one guilty of treason. Throughout the text, Carras positions the Huguenots as defenders of monarchy against evil counselors, such as the Cardinal, who manipulate right, uh, the monarchs. And even in various cases, not just the young monarchs, but the mature Henry II is described as the pawn and dupe of the Cardinal's machinations. We know monarchomachs, we know resistance theorists recognize the past in order to fashion a more utopian future. 
Um, and in this text, Karaz launches into a very colorful and, and creative reconstruction of Carolingian history, focusing on the coup d'etat orchestrated by Pepin the Short in, in, in 1751, right? Um, this is a, 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 a part of, or of, of Frankish history that gets very little play or very different treatment uh, in other resistance treaties. For Carras, however, this rupture in Frankish history is instrumental to his efforts to discredit the Guises, specifically the Cardinal of Lorraine, right, who claimed illustrious, their illustrious status as princes of the blood and peers of the realm from their Carolingian forebears. And I think it's also a strategy to discredit the Catholic Church. In Carras' telling of the story, right, um, one that I actually tell my own students, right? The, you know, Pepin the Short, the Merovingian mayor of the palace, palace the mayor of the palace of, of, of King Childeric, works in concert kind of with the Pope um, uh, to depose uh, Childeric and to create a new kind of uh, dynasty. And in return, Pepin agrees to help the Pope with his problems against the, against the Lombards. And this is the beginning of the, the, the famous kind of uh, uh, Franco papal pact. Now in Carras telling of the story, the motivations of Pepin the Short are indistinguishable from those of the Cardinal of Rennes. And as Carras asserts, both utilize the forces of Rome in the hopes of deposing a duly elected monarch to establish a new dynasty for themselves and their heirs. In so doing both, quote, so two venomous strains of infidelity through Christianity that corrupted both the nobility and the papacy as well as despoiled potentates of their kingdom, kingdoms only to establish others in their place. Now, in his conclusion, Kura um, returns again to his central theme of negotiations, upping the stake by mobilizing biblical examples starting with you know, Yahweh's or the God of creation's negotiations with the illustrious Old Testament patriarchs um, from Adam, Noah, Abraham to Moses, David, and Solomon. And all of these are seen as covenants that are mere rehearsals for the final kind of compact or convention between God and his community with all humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. So in the text, I think you can almost hear the rhetorical pause before the seasoned jurist launches his final closing argument. And, and here I just have to quote again. If the all powerful one, Kara writes, wanted to contract with and negotiate with his creatures who are but earthly worms and rot, if he takes pleasure in seeing his promises and contracts accomplished, how can an earthly king who is of the same flesh, blood, earth, and mud, whose authority derives from the election of his subjects, find it wrong, nay even evil, to negotiate with him? Hugh Dossi writes that Carras' political question was one of the most famous pamphlets published in La Rochelle in the Third Religious War. We know little, however, about the reception of Carras' treatise even in La Rochelle. There is no evidence like Francis Oppmann that he sent the work to friends. Uh, Simon Goulard admitted the text in his memoirs um, on the state of France under the reign of Charles IX, even though Oppmann, Beza, La Boissie, and two other anonymous treatises are given pride of place in the second volume. Beza himself 
sent copies of Jean Serre's The History of the Third Religious War, also published in 1570 to a couple of friends, even though he admitted he didn't think it was particularly good, uh, but he never mentions Carras' question politique in his correspondence. That Beza knew the work and had read it, however, is clear from the ninth chapter of his Rights of Magistrate published four years later. There, the Genevan reformer makes explicit reference to Carras in um, his ninth chapter, the ninth and penultimate chapter of the treatise entitled, Subjects Can Negotiate with Their Prince. And although it is among the shortest chapters in the treatise with examples largely drawn from scripture, Beza offers a crucial elaboration of Carras's argument by asserting that new negotiations or capitulation are not innovations or changes in the law, but confirmation of what always already exists. That is that negotiations should be understood as legitimate efforts to clarify former accords and assure the implementation of former treaties in their entirety. As Beza opines, quote, one is not engaging in a new capitulation, capitulation with the king, when one insists that the former agreement is valid and should be observed, or when where one is attempting to leave room to another who seems more likely to be concerned about their observance. This assertion allows Beza to maintain his own legal paradox that laws are both fixed and fluid, subject to enrichment over time. To Huguenots facing an uncertain future after the infamous massacres of St. Bartholomew's, this open-ended open vision of peacemaking was crucial. The resolution or the clear and, and easy resolution, simple resolution, I should say, on the question taken up so many times about whether or not the taking up arms by inferiors is legitimate, um, a text written by an adolescent Odette de la Noue, who had been in La Rochelle in 1570 when his father served as governor of the city, also bears the imprint of Carras' vernacular um, in certain passages. La Noue suggests too that peace is a corollary of war, that negotiation is a part of the peacemaking process, offering that if you object to the word capitule, then let's you know, suggest another word. We're coming to a good arrangement, bon appointment. Um, uh, nonetheless, he argues, we're essentially doing the same thing. As Olette Joana has demonstrated, Carras attempts to rehabilitate the term capitule and the process it described continued to be contested in the propaganda wars of the 16th century until the ascent of Henry IV brought an end to the war of words and arms. In his brief but brilliant foray into the world of clandestine print and polemic, Jean de Carras articulated themes that would become the lifeblood of a fully-throated radical reinterpretation of re religious, or excuse me, of royal authority in the later stages of the religious wars. Although Carras himself was silenced by an assassin's dagger in a provincial iteration of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in October of 1572, his work continued to provide the Huguenot party in France with a potent vocabulary divided, derived from legal theory and practice with which to challenge their opponents. To be sure, 
his methodology, rhetoric, historical repertoire were part of a common humanist heritage that he shared with his literary successors. But his arguments were so compelling that they were eventually adopted by Catholic leaguers to legitimate their own actions against the king in the last stages of the religious war. Thus, the search for legitimacy common to all insurgencies found a potent and original voice in the jurist from Toulouse. Thanks. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was great. I really appreciate that. And I think there'll be a good discussion afterwards. But right now, we'll go straight on and hear from our second presenter, and that is Preston Hill. Preston, it's all yours. Wonderful. Well, I just want to reiterate, um, as I pull up my timer here to make sure I stay on point, um, I just want to reiterate my sincere thanks for this facility for the meter center thank you for last year for pushing us to this year um i was as i attested to deborah and others i was just giddy uh walking through the aisles my first my first visit to the meter center so i'm just uh, really really fun to uh, see and avail of these materials um right so the death of the soul christ descent into hell and the thought of calvin lefebvre and kusa um John Calvin devoted five times more space in his institutes to explaining the descent into hell than any other clause of the Apostles' Creed. And this explanation repeats the same interpretation he had already developed in his first treatise, the Sycopanachia. Um, although Calvin defended this interpretation uh, throughout his commentaries, sermons, letters, and the final edition of the institutes, constantly expanding and defending his interpretation, never recanting, unlike some of his forerunners and peers, um, the secondary literature on this theme is virtually non-existent despite a, a glut of Calvin research. Um, so far as I'm aware, there's only a couple of articles published in recent years. And uh, in one of these articles uh, published at the Calvin Congress volume, the most recent one, I suggested that the French humanist scholar Jacques Lefebvre de Taple can, uh, ought to be considered something of a forerunner for Calvin. Uh, because of a shared interpretation between them that's a bit too historically close and conceptually similar uh, to be accidental. Um, in this presentation, I want to supplement that by showing that Lefebvre um, explicitly relied on Nicholas of Cusa and some sermons, uh, one particular sermon of Cusa, um, for this uh, interpretation of Christ's descent into hell, and that the similarity between these figures, I think, represents a kind of organic stream of teaching um, between the late medieval and to the early modern period that Calvin's interpretation is situated within. And the major finding I'll be advancing, of course, is that despite popular, um, what we find a lot of popular summaries of Calvin's theology, this wasn't novel. This wasn't um, something unique or idiosyncratic to Calvin. Um, this in fact emerges very naturally from his own setting. The other thing I want to query is that uh, when we look at this in the more nuanced understanding, what we find is that um, the common reduction that Christ descends into hell on the cross for Calvin is uh, just not true. It's not the case that Christ descends into hell on the cross. Uh, I hope to show that by looking at his um, treatise, The Sycopanachia. Um, and this continues, this idea is it's a common, I think, because of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a, it's a common um, way of summarizing Calvin's theology, and the designation is apt, I understand, but um, it just doesn't do justice to the complexity and the nuance of what you actually find in Calvin's writings and how he understood the descent into hell. And so to embody sort of the 
this just is perpetuated to the present day, but I'll just give a quote from a very recent book uh, that shows kind of the opinion I'm trying to complexify a little bit. This comes from Matthew Emerson's book, uh, He Descended to the Dead and Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. And you'll find this kind of thing said in a lot of systematic textbooks. Quote, Calvin's view is entirely novel with respect to the views of those that preceded the Reformation. Never, never before had anyone placed Christ's descent on Friday or made it an instance of torment. All before Calvin had affirmed that Christ descended to the place of the dead, but not the place of the unrighteous dead to be tormented. One might ask why Calvin came up with this view. Well, that's exactly what I want to ask. And of course, I want to suggest he, he didn't really come up with it. Um, and that his view is a, a bit more nuanced than that. So uh, with that, let's turn to Calvin and the Sycopanikia. Um, the Sycopanikia, of course, is a really neglected Calvin uh, treatise by Calvin. And it, I think it's not incidental that Calvin's descent theology is reduced and not understood because this is where it first appears in the Sycopanikia. And uh, what we find in the, in the treatise, of course, it's on the immortality of the soul. Calvin is defending against um, uh, certain mortalistic views of the soul, either that the soul is, uh, when, when the body dies, the soul sleeps, or the soul was never there to begin with because you're a materialist, or um, the soul dies, uh, literally dissipates like the body. Calvin is rejecting these interpretations, maintaining what he thinks is orthodox, the immortality of the soul. But what's interesting about Calvin is this whole track does it on the basis uh, many of the key arguments are funded by his Christology and his atonement theology. His understanding as the person and work of Christ drive a lot of his arguments. So for that reason, I think his reference in the Sycopanikia to the Christ's descent into hell, it's not an isolated reference to an incidental doctrine. It's actually the formal designation of an atoning intervention that I think is at the heart of the whole treatise. Um, and the reason why is because Calvin fundamentally understand Christ's descent into hell here in the Sycopanikia and later throughout the Institutes and all of his other works as the death of the soul. I think that's a governing sort of uh, central feature of his interpretation. And of course, this is how it connects with the immortality of the soul. So to understand how Calvin situates it, uh, we have to understand before we understand the death of the soul, it'd be good to understand what Calvin means by the soul. Uh, in the Sycopanikia, he gives a wonderful little definition, uh, which I'll quote from here. For those who admit that the soul lives, yet deprive it of all sense, fain imagine a soul which has none of the properties of soul, or dissever the soul from itself, seeing that the soul's nature, without which it cannot possibly exist, is to move, to feel, to be vigorous, to understand. As Tertullian says, the soul of the soul, the soul's own soul, is perception. Animae anima sensus sit. So the idea here is that uh, it's quite simple. Calvin's saying that um, an unconscious soul, to speak of an unconscious soul is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. Uh, the soul is essentially the phenomenon of human consciousness, of perception, right? Of intellect and will, perceiving, discriminating between good and evil, and then moving toward it with the will. And so to speak of the soul um, dying in the sense that the body dies, as if it could dissipate or annihilation, is just a contradiction of terms. It's to talk about the soul as if it were a kind of second body. And Calvin wants to say, again, 
because souls are always conscious, that's what it means to be a soul. Um, this requires a reinterpretation of the death of the soul. So essentially Calvin's confronted with this problem. If, um, if the soul uh, is consciousness, basically, and again, I'm moving very broad brushstrokes here, moving very quickly, but um, what does it mean for consciousness to die? And so Calvin asks this question directly in the, in the, the treatise. I ask whether or not there is to be any end to that death, uh, the second death, the death of the soul. If none, as we must certainly acknowledge, again, because it's consciousness, these things make it manifest that the immortality of the soul, which we assert, and which we say consists in a perception of good and evil, exists even when it is dead, and that that death is something else than the annihilation to which they, the soul sleepers, would reduce it. So again, uh, then Calvin, okay, Calvin, I, I'm following you. Well, if the soul dies, but it doesn't cease to exist, then what is the death of the soul? Calvin gives this answer, and this is exactly where he slots in Christ's descent into hell. Um, dust will return to dust. This is said of the body. The death of the soul is very different. It is the judgment of God, the weight of which the wretched soul cannot bear without being wholly confounded, crushed, and desperate. Um, and then he references Adam. When God calls to Adam, passes the judgment. Um, you will die the death right in the Garden of Eden. Um, would you know what the death of the soul is? It is to be without God, to be abandoned by God, to be left to itself. For if God is its life, it loses its life when it loses the presence of God. What more do you require of death? For although the mind retains its powers of perception, yet evil concupiscence is, as it were, a kind of mental stupefaction then such death as the soul endures Christ underwent on our account. And this is the confession, he says later, picks this back up. And this is the confession which we make in the creed, that Christ descended into hell. In other words, he was subjected to all the pains of death. He endured its agonies and terrors. And so this, this is very, very compelling. And, and Calvin, what he's saying is, again, the death of the soul is not quantitative decay like body like the body, it's qualitative condition. It's a, a psychological adversity uh, in which the soul having passed into the intermediate state under the conditions of the fall as, um, as a child of Adam, the soul um, perceives itself to be engaged in an adverse relation with God. Again, this is the classic Calvin thing of God is the judge, not the father in the intermediate state. That's what the death of the soul is. He's very clear on this. Um, now, before we move to Lefebvre and Cusa, there's, there's one more thing to note here. Um, in the first place, um, it's, it's very, Calvin is very clear in this, in this construction that when he refers to the death of the soul in Christ, as Christ's descent into hell, he's referring to the intermediate state, a disembodied state of ruin. He's very clear about uh, Christ's prior dereliction, why have you forsaken me? That appears in the Sycopanikia. And he says, those who are dead, buried, carried into the land of forgetfulness are called forsaken of God. So what I want to just propose here is Calvin's being very clear in the very least that the qualitative condition of God forsakenness that he wants to apply to the soul of Christ, uh, it, it ref it's materially referring to a disembodied state of ruin. We might say Holy Saturday is being included here. 
So the idea that there's no room for Holy Saturday in Calvin is just not true based on his whole construction, right, of the intermediate state. But as Lyle Birma, hello, Lyle, it's really great to see you here. He brought this to my attention at the Calvin Congress, and I was really grateful for it that, of course, Calvin says it is finished, and it happened at the cross, and uh, Christ offers up in a bundle of souls all the elect to God when he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. And this is part of the whole point of the Sycopanicia, that Christ in the intermediate state has the beatific vision. He does not have the, um, again, he acquires the peace that the elect repose in, in the intermediate state. So then we ask this question, Calvin, how can you have your cake and eat it too? Sounds like both sides of your mouth. You're saying Christ has the death of the soul, but you're also saying Christ in the intermediate state experiences uh, the beatific vision. So which is it? And I think Calvin provides the answer. Um, similarly, that I found actually here, I found in Zwingli and Bullinger, thank you, Meter Center Resources, um, making very similar distinctions, I think that what is happening is a kind of prolepsis or a kind of meditation of the future, a kind of anticipation of the judgment of God. Um, and Calvin indicates this in the Sycopanachia. He says, um, to pull one quote to, to evince this, Christ does not deprecate death, but that grievous sense of the severity of God with which he was seized by death. So in other words, he is, this is Calvin's constantly talking about how Christ He's fearing what is to come. He's fearing the judgment, I think, of the intermediate state uh, in Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, et cetera. So the way I summarize all of this um, to move on, of course, to Lefebvre and Cusa is that Calvin seems to solve this problem with a complex arrangement, um, according to which we, we could put it a couple of different ways, but a very simple way to say it is Holy Saturday is sort of front-loaded onto Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, that Christ is somehow experiencing the death of the soul of the intermediate state prior to that chronologically. Chronologically, it's on Thursday and Friday. So um, let me make sure I've got all that covered. So with all of that, um, we might want to ask at this point, um, where did this come from? And was this, was this very original to Calvin? I mean, again, he's 20-something he's years old, potentially, when he's saying this first treatise. Uh, he failed being a humanist. You know, the die are cast, and no one, no one, put, no one purchased um, his commentary on Seneca. And he's trying his hand at the immortality of the soul, penning the Institutes, fleeing France. Like, this seems really bold. Where did this come from, young Calvin? Um, and you find that people say, as I quoted earlier, um, it's very common in all the sources when I was doing this research that I found, say, even Calvin scholars say um, um, this was kind of a uh, very new and innovative departure from tradition, uh, all of these things. I just want to try to suggest here that I don't think that's the case. Um, I think Calvin is drawing on a, a, I think what was in the air in his day from Lefebvre, a humanist exegesis of the scriptures and from uh, Cusa. So let's move to Jacques Lefebvre de Taple. Um, he was of course a, a humanist um, scholar who taught at the University of Paris, um, was causing a lot of trouble, was doing exegesis and the Sorbonne faculty did not like that. And um, in 1517, he published 
uh, a text called De Maria Magdalena et Triduo Christi. And he was sort of doing his exegesis, harmonizing the gospel accounts of the three Marys and talking about the Triduum events of Friday, uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. And for our purposes, um, in, de, in De Triduo, talking about the Triduum, Lefebvre, of course, Calvin at this time, 1517, um, very, very young Calvin, um, Lefebvre proposed in this text alternate ways of accounting for the passage of time prior to Christ's resurrection. He was arguing against Erasmus. Erasmus said Christ rose on the third day. Lefebvre says he rose after three days. And Lefebvre says that because Christ says in Matthew 12, um, I need to spend three days in the heart of the earth, which Lefebvre took to mean the underworld. But of course, if Christ is going to spend three days in the heart of the earth, Lefebvre says, well, we've only got Friday night, Saturday night. So this is the problem of the third night. Where is the third night? And Lefebvre says, well, there's two ways we might go about finding this third night that Christ predicted he was in hell in the heart of the earth. One, you might say with Ambrose that when darkness covered the land and the crucifixion, there's your mini night, right? A little small mini night, the literal Friday night and the literal Saturday night, there's your three nights. He says, or you could say that Christ began descending into hell on Monday, Thursday, when he was um, sore, amazed, and heavily anguished, you know, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Lefebvre says this in De Trudeau, and it's a, a very a worthwhile quote connecting to Calvin. Um, Sending Christ down to the underworld before that day, uh, when he was in the garden, in, in the garden, the Lord anticipated the underworld and was present there by his apprehension of it. And those pains which the Lord suffered in his soul in the garden were so bitter and un unbearable, greater than any mortal. And we do not read that this happened with the bodily pains he had to suffer on the cross. For these, although they are the greatest of all such pains, cannot possibly be as great as those of soul. Through these pains of Jesus, of his total humanity, no less of the body than of the soul. So again, we've got Lefebvre in 1517 here saying, um, highlighting a couple of key points that I think are shared directly in common with the Sycopanikia that then Calvin further develops in the Institutes, uh, in the subsequent editions of the Institutes. And those features are an explicit body-soul distinction. Calvin's very clear in the Institutes, of course, in his teaching on the descent into hell that, um, again, if Christ had only died a bodily death, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone but this refers to the price, the greater and more excellent price he paid in his soul than in his body. So Calvin apparently thinks the descent into hell is greater and more excellent than the crucifixion. I mean, that's just taking him at his word, what he's saying, soul and body. Um, another, of course, key element here is the proleptic anticipation during Gethsemane of the pains of hell, uh, that there's sort of Christ is present in hell by his apprehension of it, his meditation upon it what's coming. Uh, and that's, I think, exactly what Calvin's saying in Sycopanikia. And the other is that Christ is the greatest of all possible sufferers um, for various reasons. You find this in Erasmus too, and other, other um, like texts of the time. Um, yes, we've got that. So I guess now it's time to go to Cusa. I'm just following my clock here. Um, What's interesting about what Lefebvre had offered here in the De Triduo 1517 is that he directly cites the German Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, the um, 
the medieval German cardinal. Uh, on these most bitter pains of Jesus, read, if you will, Cusa. And this reference to Cusa is not the first one, uh, the first time Lefebvre references Cusa as an inspiration for his um, interpretation of the descent into hell. He had already said in 1509 in his Pincuplex Psalterium, his fivefold Psalter, in a commentary on Psalm 3011, uh, he offered a commentary. The Psalterium was a compilation of various uh, translations of the Psalms, and it was he was offering commentaries on it. This was Lefebvre's Christological exegesis of the Psalms, uh, Christoformitas, and all of that. Um, and the entire work became famous of all the Psalms um, for this one little commentary he offered on Psalm 30, verse 11, Undecimo Versu, um, where he talks about, um, he, he elaborates on Cusa's interpretation that Christ descended into hell, that he experienced hell. Um, and so this is, I'm gonna quote here, I had to look this up. I actually had the help of David Noe here at Calvin to make sure I got my translation right of, of the Latin into English here because it, it hasn't been translated yet. But this is Lefebvre's, um, his commentary on Psalm 3011, again, that the whole work became famous for, as I'll talk about in a moment. There are those, this is Lefebvre, there are those who want the Lord not only to have carried the pains of an earthly death for us, but also to have sustained the pains of hell in his soul in order that he might set free Adam who had incurred the second death in his transgression and Adam's posterity from the pains of the second death. This is what Cusa perceived in his sermons when this was introduced, but this is the opinion of Cusa. At first glance, it seemed to me not only pointless, but also shocking and dreadful. And so I began to ponder it more anxiously. So this is Lefebvre giving us an autobiographical account of being horrified by Cousteau's musings on Christ suffering like a damned person. And uh, this is really fascinating to me that you find in the McNeil uh, and Battles um, Institutes, and you find this constantly cited a lot of places that Cousteau preached a sermon on Psalm 30. And that's where Calvin got his view from. I think most people think this because they read Lefebvre saying this in his commentary on Psalm 30 a sermon from Cusa, but there actually is no, I, I've, I've uh, conferred with um, Thomas's Vicky on this, that there is no um, sermon that Cusa preached that I've ever found. I looked them up in his works on Psalm 30. It seems to come from a sermon on Hebrews 9 that um, Lefebvre uh, seems to have consulted. And that sermon from Cusa, again, uh, medieval preaching here, mystical preaching, it goes like this. The vision of death, uh, is the consummate punishment. Now Christ's death was the consummate punishment um, where he had a vision of death. Uh, Christ descended into the lower regions, the lower and deeper hell where death is seen. Therefore, if you rightly consider the matter Christ's suffering, excuse me, then which there cannot be a greater suffering was as the suffering of the damned who cannot be more greatly damned i.e. was suffering all the way to punishment in hell. So there's the radical, I think that's the radical claim that, that uh, Lefebvre was um, struck by. And the idea here is actually quite simple, I think. It's the idea that, uh, and again, as I say, I was really happy to find this also in Zwingli and Bullinger, that um, Christ suffered, that Adam merited not only bodily death, but the death of the soul. 
And if Christ is going to atone for Adam and Adam's posterity, it's got to be not just a bodily death, but um, paying some kind of price for the soul. Uh, so the entirety of, of human nature, because otherwise it's not redeemed. Um, so because Adam merited the second death, Christ has to suffer the second death in some sense. Um, so now with all of this, the really fascinating thing is that, and this will be my last point before drawing this to a conclusion. Um, although Lefebvre had been persuaded by Cusa, his contemporaries were not convinced. And the publication of 1509 received criticisms for its, uh, again, its Cusanian interpretation of Psalm 3011. Um, and in response, Lefebvre published a second edition of the Psalterium in 1513, this time prefixed with a 12 page apologetic clarification, an apology of his suggestion that Christ had suffered the pains of hell. And uh, it's a really fascinating uh, read and kind of moment in, in early French reform here. Uh, but on the whole, Lefebvre seeks to clear himself of two errors. And the way he tries to get out of this uh, apologize to his critics, I think shows kind of, it gives us a hint of kind of how Calvin developed his point as well. The two errors are that of what I'll call docetism and demonizing Christ. That's a, a quote from another Kusanian scholar. Um, the, docet the docetism point is this, if Christ suffers the death of the soul after the cross, it seems to trivialize the crucifixion. It seems to, this is the whole, it is finished objection. And to this Lefebvre says, no, guys, I'm orthodox, one oblation, it is finished, the cross was enough. Um, and then the second problem is that of demonizing Christ. And the problem here is that if you make Christ suffer like a damned person, it seems to be very scandalous. You seem to be, um, again, demonizing Christ. You seem to be calling his divine status into question somehow. And Lefebvre to this, he used a, a really fascinating, I think, um, sort of Tychonian exegetical strategy of the head members distinction. So he said that when Christ suffered, he didn't suffer in his person, but he suffered in his members, i.e., uh, either his body or his, his mystical body, the church. He suffered on behalf of those who he's standing in for. So he wasn't sinful himself. He wasn't damned himself, but uh, in a substitutionary way. So in the end, um, all of this, what we have Lefebvre is he's trying to have his cake and eat it too, I think. He's trying to um, satisfy the concerns of his critics with this apology to remain orthodox. Um, but also still see himself in continuity with this Kusanian, uh, uh, Kusanian sympathy, if you will. Um, so with all of this, uh, again, Lefebvre, this was a, a scandalous interpretation that was widely, um, would have been widely known, again, at Calvin, young Calvin at the University of Paris. It's hard to imagine, uh, oh, it's possible, I'm not claiming any genetic causal links here at all. I am for Cusa and Lefebvre because Lefebvre cites Cusa, but I haven't found Calvin citing Lefebvre, but um, it seems very hard to imagine that Lefebvre could have um, become infamous for this issue on the descent into hell and that Calvin at such a young age could have published such similar things without having any awareness of Lefebvre. I think at the very least we can say this was, I think part of the late medieval, early modern lay piety 
of reform and, and verve about Christ's atonement that was in the air as Calvin was coming of age. And to, um, to close this, let me quote from, um, I'll offer you two little quotes here that I think are good summaries of what I'm trying to get at here. One is from Jean-Claude Lagarigue, a Cusanian scholar. He's got a lovely essay called The Infernal Suffering of Christ, Lefebvre, Cusa, and Luther. Quote, when we look at it in the full, the rupture of Luther and Calvin on this article of faith does not form a radical fissure. The reformers in their work would only come across as innovators to those who ignore or want to ignore the Cusanian tradition present in the church at least uh, since the beginning of the 16th century. And this is another quote from a more recent work by Thomas Joseph White, a uh, Roman Catholic theologian in a, a book, a really delightful book called The Incarnate Lord, The Study in Thomistic Christology. Of course, I was very happy reading this coming from a Roman Catholic scholar today. Quote, the idea that Christ suffered the pains of damnation on the cross for the sake of sinners was not an idea unique to Protestant thinkers, such as Luther and Calvin. It was taught by many Catholic thinkers of the late medieval period and was a theme in popular preaching in Catholic Europe. Um, John Calvin, therefore, is not unique or exclusively Protestant in holding to a form of penal substitution theory that posits Christ's experience of hell um, on the cross. Of course, I would want to add to that that on the cross is a convenient shorthand that needs to be uh, nuanced a little bit. So uh, that is the gist. I'll stop there so, so we can do what's next. Thank you. Thank you so much, Preston. That was great. Um, what we're going to do now, I think there's not that many of us. So your options are for asking questions. Our usual strategy is for you to post something in the chat, and I would encourage you to do that. But if for some reason you prefer to unmute and ask your question, I'm going to shift to gallery view, and I'm going to keep an eye on as many people as I can. Uh, and if you wish to go ahead and unmute and ask your question, you can do so too. I think I have three screens to watch. So I'll be, I'll be watching, but I'll, I'll, if I don't catch you, just take take your time. I'll, I'll get to you as I can. Um, I want to start myself, however, with a question, first of all, for Amanda. Um, who do you think the audience was for Jean de Coras work? Like who was, was there a preface? Does he, does he give any indication as to, to whom this work is directed? Uh, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in, in the first, I'll just say, uh, that in the question politique, it, it's really hard to determine. And one of the things that I'm, you know, struggling a little bit also deals with the issue of publication. I can see that first pamphlet in 1569, um, of which there is no trace, um, uh, would have been in a format where it clearly would have been widely circulated. He writes in the vernacular. Um, I think, you know, he's obviously addressing kind of, um, uh, an educated elite, um, and uh, but 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 one of the things I've been questioning is who buys the eight hundred plus page compendium um, that is issued in fifteen seventy, and and there are, there are several of these, as you know. I mean, Goulart's uh, the you know Goulart's three volume treatise on the you know history of of Charles the Ninth. Also, I mean, these would have been 
massively expensive kind of works, right, to produce, and I'm assuming that they would be kind of expensive too. So, um, uh, you know, who did he intend his, his audience to be? Fellow um, Protestants, but I also think kind of fellow Catholics, um, I mean, moderate Catholics. I think he's trying in this work to create a platform as he is in that first um, small treatise too on the, uh, on the you know, about the, the Parliament of Toulouse. Um, uh, which he writes, I think I told you this, as a letter, he, he assumed the identity of a canon of a kind of local church, the Church of San Antien in Toulouse. And he writes a letter to a friend, an unidentified friend, about the horrors of you know the expulsion and judicial politics and the necessity for reform in Toulouse. So I think that both of these are really directed to the same, to the same audience. Right? Um, and his emphasis, I think, on peacemaking too, uh, is an intent to kind of bring it down. I mean, there is rage in these in these in these in these treatises, as I indicated my in my my um, title. But I think to bring it down and to try to kind of sound I don't know centrist isn't the right word, but a kind of more moderate tone. It isn't as stridently militant as these other remonstrances and petitions and and even open letters um, that are part of the volume, um, and to try to get some kind of moderate Catholics on side. Right. Um, that, uh, politique that, party, that politique party, um, you know, that by 1568 is, you know, increasingly non-existent, um, you know, represented by the chancellor, you know, by Michel de l'Hôpital, who's been sidelined at this point. And eventually, you know, is he already in retirement or not? I can't quite remember. Um, and so I think he's trying to resurrect a kind of, you know, uh, a centrist kind of alliance between moderate Catholics and Protestants. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, Jim West has a question. Jim. Yeah, my question is for Preston. Uh, I'm really fascinated by your observation that Calvin's discussion of the descent into hell didn't receive a lot of treatment. Uh, why do you think that is? Do, do people just kind of disregard that little bit of the creed, or or is there something they find objectionable in Calvin's? discussion. Yeah, I'm curious as to why they wouldn't engage it. Yeah, I, I am too, because it seemed, I think, um, I think on one hand, pe people have and do address it, but don't realize they're talking about the descent into hell. I think they, I think the thought is that it's just the crucifixion. So there's a lot of talk on the crucifixion and the cross and atonement. And I think the descent into hell kind of just gets a tagline, like it's just referring to the crucifixion. I think it's the other way around, actually. Um, uh, because again, it's the the soul. So I think maybe there have been a lot of people thinking, writing about the descent into hell and Calvin not realizing it, but it just goes by the name of the cross or the crucifixion. Um, but this, uh, I think Calvin makes a kind of taxonomy here, a distinction between body and soul that, um, was pretty consistent and and important to him. Um, I don't know. I don't know why else. I mean, it is pretty curious. Also, if you're reading through the institutes, I remember the first time I came across it. It it was very strange. It's hard to know what to make of. He spends a kind of a brief. It's a nice cadence, right? One paragraph on um, birth and. Uh, and dead and buried, and then you get to descent into hell, and it's the sprawling chapters and. He's talking about the soul and Gethsemane, and it, it seems like Calvin, well, you've, got, you've lost your order here. You know, I thought this was supposed to be brief and ordered. 
But if you just kind of pull it apart a little bit, I think it makes sense as to why he he's developed. He's it, it's like he kept tacking on defenses throughout his career of his interpretation, and it, it amassed to this big tumor <laughs> in the institutes in his explanation of the creed. But it's beautiful, and it's it's a part of part of his earliest development, I think. Um, he clearly had a lot to say about it. Yeah. On that light, I'll continue with the question from Lyle Birma, also to you, Preston. Where does Luther fit into this picture of the medieval and Reformation development of the doctrine of the descent? Mm. Yes, well, of course. I mean, and I have to say, um, Lyle Birma immensely helps me with your, your unpublished 16th century, I think, paper on this issue of Calvin and, and Luther and Heidelberg. Um, I mean, again, um, an organic link can be seen in, in the Heidelberg Catechism uses the word Anfängtung, which is Luther's whole category of, of uh, it's an indeterminate range of, of emotional, spiritual turmoil and distress. And I remember also reading, there's a great article in uh, the journal Perichoresis by, um, uh, what's his name? Um, it's, on, it's called Luther versus Luther. And it's essentially looking at the way the way the story is often told is that Calvin had a infernal kind of suffering view on Good Friday of the descent, and Luther had a victorious um, uh, descent, Christ marching down, body and soul undivided, the Torgo sermon. Uh, when you look at it, that's actually the exception to the rule, and Luther most of the time has a very, um, to speak anachronistically, a very reformed and um, you know, infernalist interpretation of Christ's suffering like a damned person. Um, and I think you find there's a really interesting marginal note. I think Luther had a copy of Lefebvre's Psalter and there's a marginal note of Luther writing in there. Uh, I think the translation is something like um, Lefebvre's on to something when he's talking about Kusa or something like that. Like he's on to something here. And that's just really interesting. I think, again, this is the picture of the more it's a lot more organic and has to do with the early evangelical fervor of getting excited about atonement and Christ and all is accomplished and justification and all of that. Um, so Luther definitely is Calvin's forerunner uh, as much as Lefebvre, I think. Yep. And they're all kind of intertwined and we don't, they don't mm -hmm. unfortunately always tell us, and I just read so-and-so and they've inspired me to write so-and-so, but unfortunately they don't do that. Uh, we have a question from Jill Faleson for Amanda. Uh, I'm struck, Jill says, by how when we look more closely at those involved in negotiations, individual views are often shifting, particularly on the Protestant side. How does this complicate our understanding of the negotiations during the French religious, the French civil wars? Great. Um, well, I'll say first that, you know, the most obvious thing, uh, and something that I, I, I sometimes struggle with doing in my own work, and that is to avoid the binaries, right? right? Mm -hmm. Not just Catholic and Protestant. Uh, there are modest, moderate Catholics. And I mean, a perfect example of this is in 1573 in the you know, siege of, of La Rochelle, where there also seem to be some reverberations maybe of, of, uh, of um, the, a political question. And, and they're asking these, engaging in these kind of scholastic um, uh, debates between moderate uh, Protestants uh, who you know want to give up the ghost and negotiate with the government, and and radicals who um, you want to you know if if worse comes to worse cede the city 
um, uh, to Elizabeth I of England, you know, to, to, to English, you know, to, to um, English custodianship. And so, I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, clearly, um, you know, just working as, you know, people are, are doing much better than I am often uh, to, to kind of complicate, complicate the binaries that are often, you know, a part of a simplistic telling of the religious wars. The second thing I would say, think too, is that to think of negotiations, I mean, to, to, to focus too on the locals, right? There's a lot, there are these negotiations, I mean, peacemaking, and I think that's one of the things he's talking about in Question Politique. I mean, there are references to that peacemaking not only takes place at the highest levels, he's going to find out in the next stage of his career after he leads La Rochelle and he's kind of, he's helping on, uh, in, in Southern France, uh, that peacemaking, peacemaking takes place, at, uh, um, that all kind of peacemaking also has to take place at the lo local level. And if the issue is that a peace isn't durable unless it's fully implemented, right, uh, um, at least on the Protestant side, or peace isn't, isn't durable um, uh, um, and the promises haven't been held unless it's implemented, then those, 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 those interactions are taking place at the local level with a whole series kind of, of local actors who have kind of different agendas. And, um, and we see this, you know, to, to refer to the, another chapter in the book, in, in the book we, we see this in the negotiations that he in, engages in. I mean, really low level petty kind of negotiations about the exchange of prisoners and the, you know, return of ransom goods and that all of this is also kind of part of the, of, of, of the peacemaking process that he will become intimately aware of, uh, intimately aware um, of in the, um, uh, you know, in the next stage of his career. Mm -hmm. yeah. It looks like Preston, you have a question. Let me just see if we got it typed out or if this is something else. Now, Preston, you have a question for Amanda, am I right? Yes, yes. Um, I thought it'd be easier just to ask Amanda. Um, yeah. I was really fast. My question is to do with Kara and Beza. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by the Kara uses, uh, there's the a fortiori argument that if God negotiates, how much more should the king or can the king negotiate and the subjects can have that um, interaction, the dynamic sort of negotiation between them, capitulation. Um, my question was going to be, well, but like Beza would probably think, hold to some kind of classical attribute of God where God doesn't repent when he's talking to the patriarchs. This is maybe, as Calvin would say, divine accommodation, mm -hmm. but there's no actual negotiation between the transcendent and contingent because mm -hmm. God is infinite and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you said, I was interested, you said Beza, his phrasing was a negotiation, which is a confirmation of which al already existed, not mm -hmm. a new capitulation. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering that that makes sense given like some reformed orthodox things about classical attributes of God and not right. any actual negotiation with God. I was curious, um, do you think that Beza is talking in a different way than Kara? Would Kara have said these things about um, a confirmation of what was already decreed, or is there an actual more open dynamic negotiation in the way we would normally mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, let me just, you know, I, I guess I would say that I, you know, this, this dual, this notion of a dual alliance is, is you find in, 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 most kind of resistance kind of pamphlets, right? And it's a way too of making the negotiations taking place at the human level have a kind of more transcendent form. I mean, there is, you know, um, uh, um, but but I would, you know, suggest there that I think that Beza, um, I mean, there's he is speaking to something to to again like Kara, a specific um, political moment, 
um, and I hadn't thought about the fact that that the way in which he thinks about negotiation, you know, may be much more consonant kind of with his kind of, you know, reform theology than um, than um, Karaz, who you know is is well read, but of course it's not a, it's not a theologian, um, mm -hmm. and. Um, and so, yeah, there may be another, I guess if I'm understanding your question correctly, there may be another element, all right, a theological element to the, to the answer that Beza provides, right, in chapter nine about the issue kind of, of negotiation, right? But I do think there is also this kind of political element that, you know, is, is suggesting every time, I mean, I hate religious wars, every time we negotiate something, um, we're not doing something new. And innovation kind of as dangerous. This is a cons, you know, a continuous kind of conversation, a continuous negotiation, and we're really reaffirming it. And here again, too, I think that that for Beza, I mean, this is what he gets from from Karaz, I think, is that the performative element of treaty making is essential. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But good. Right. Thank you. We have a question from Jan Klok for Preston. Uh, Preston, you locate thought about the anxiety of hell to late medieval piety, if I understood well. Can it be that the roots of this, however, are less connected with lay piety, but especially in the medieval Pations Frommigkeit, coming from Bernard of Clairvaux, Francis of Assisi, and Bonaventure, which puts the accent on Christ's humanity? which led in the late medieval period to an emphasize, emphasis on his suffering. Yes. Um, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's right, that there's, there's some obvious consonants here um, with especially Bernard of Clairvaux and, and Bonaventure. I haven't read um, Bonaventure on this point, but I have on others, um, but that would be very interesting. Um, but yeah, not lay piety uh, exclusively, not at all. Um, certainly this is part of the broader tradition of placing an emphasis on Christ's humanity. That's exactly right. And that's Calvin's whole point is that um, he uses his, this is why I think again, the body soul uh, dialectic or polemic is really important because he uses it as Calvin does as a polemic against um, heresies to do with Christ's humanity like monothelitism and Apollinarianism. So he's saying that if Christ has uh, intellect and will and, and faculties capable of suffering hell, then clearly that presumes the presence of those faculties, which denies those heresies. So May yeah, I react to that? An Go ahead, Jan. Christ, yep. Go ahead. You know, is exactly well, right. Ex exactly what you are saying now does remember me to Bonaventure in his uh, Deiscientia uh, Christi, uh, he talks about uh, the knowledge of Christ, and there he uh, he explains that Christ already knows everything when he is not when he wasn't born, but when he is on the earth, he learns it by experience. So he mm -hmm. already knew it, but when he is uh, incarnated, he learns it by experience. So that's. Uh, possible the same line of thought. Oh, absolutely. And this has been, I think you're right. Um, this has been something very interesting looking at Calvin because Calvin is, he's trying to pick up a certain patristic vein that, that gets carried a minority report, I think in the, in the middle ages of Christ's knowledge and ignorance and things like that. 
Um, so he likes, he likes Ambrose on this point. Ironically, Calvin quotes Hillary of Poitiers who actually said opposite things to this, but yes, you're, you're completely on, um, I agree with you on that, yeah. It looks like Jeff Watt has a question for Preston. Go ahead, Jeff. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, also, I want to apologize profusely for joining uh, late. I just got distracted, and I'm sorry I missed Amanda's presentation entirely. Uh, <laughs> Preston, I am curious about um, <clears throat> this descent into hell. The only thing I knew about Calvin's ideas on the descent into hell, uh, I encountered when I was working on my <clears throat> MA thesis 40 years ago and on Sebastian Castellio. Castellio was turned down for the ministry by Calvin because of two disagreements. One was their understanding of the Song of Songs, which Calvin thought was divinely inspired. Castello thought it was a dirty, dirty poem. Uh, the other was a descent uh, into hell. And uh, from what way it's been portrayed, uh, Castello believed it was a literal descent into hell. Calvin believed it was more figurative. Is that entirely wrong or does that have to be nuanced or uh, <clears throat> what's your take on that? Yeah, that is, thank you for bringing that. That is a really fascinating point. Um, yes, of course, he had the, the disagreement with Castellio on this. Uh, one of the most fascinating points of my research was finding a letter from Calvin uh, to Viret, I think, um, talking about Castellio. And he, it's a kind of a passing comment. And he says, um, uh, he references his interpretation against Castellio. And he, he calls his interpretation, um, he shorthands it by referencing the cry of dereliction. Uh, and he says it's subjoined to Christ's burial. Um, and, you know, I think it often does get shorthanded, the literal versus figurative. And I think the literal is a way we oftentimes translate uh, what was more said in the past as local descent, um, which I think is more accurate to what they meant. Because, and the reason I say that, I don't think Calvin, well, I, I think Calvin, he did not think his interpretation was figurative or metaphorical um, because he says explicitly in the Sycopanachia that when the word hell is used in scripture or in his theological prose to refer to conscience and terrorized anguish and all of that, um, he says these words can be taken without a figure. He says that quite literally, that, that hell is not, figuratively terror. It literally is. That's what hell is. It's the condition of a soul and perceiving itself to be engaged in an adverse relation with God. So I think Calvin would say to Castellio, probably something like, I have a more theologically nuanced understanding of what hell is than you do. But that's just my, my guess at what Calvin's getting at. We have a question from Christine for Preston, and I think we might make that the last one. Christine, go ahead. Uh, yes, thanks, Preston. I'm, I'm questioning you. I'm just 20 feet down the hall, but uh, I'll talk to you this way. Um, actually, this is kind of piggybacking on, on Jeff, and, and I'm actually echoing Kyrene's first, very first question to Amanda, which is, why the heck does Calvin write the Psychopanicia? It's such a strange book compared to, I mean, what was he doing? What do you know why, who, yeah. who was he thinking of when he was writing this? Is it just, was it just a kind of intellectual exercise on his part to work out some ideas or does he have an audience in mind? Yeah, that is such a fascinating question because I, I remember Heiko Oberman saying, man, the Sycopanikia, the structure is chaotic. And, and like Karl Barth saying, um, 
this is just like it feels like it's out of left field and it really does and you come across it it's just this like this wonderful mythical forest kind of, of like what are who is this i can't believe you wrote this um i think calvin was of course it's written against the anabaptists um in some sense uh i think what calvin's doing is i like to see i like to remember that he was probably writing composing the Panachia almost nearly contemporary with the first edition of the institutes which was going to be prefaced as a sort of political apologetic for the you know the the non-radicalness of the reform this that this is within this truly is a reform of christian teaching christian doctrine and so i find it interesting that he picked up on the immortality of the soul which was a key issue of um thinking whether or not one is in keeping with the christian tradition coming before he thought of it as a very fundamentally a thing to do with christian orthodoxy we think of the immortality of the soul as um tangential and kind of it doesn't seem as important as other if we're christians as other doctrines but i think back then they saw it as fundamental um maybe one of the reasons as i say is calvin's the work is like it's densely a work of philosophical anthropology for sure but more more deeply and fundamentally than that it's a work in i think soteriology and christology calvin's constant reference is souls are immortal because our souls are one with Christ. And if Christ isn't dying, we our souls can't die. So it's not on the basis of like, it's not a random philosophical argument. It's actually part of the whole gospel of um, our souls can escape terror because they're safe in union with Christ. That's kind of the kind of the point of it or the heart of it. So I think it has to do with again, um He's starting to play around with leaving, leaving and moving into something else. Um, he's fleeing France, um, but he's still getting the benefits of the Catholic Church. And you know, he's very young, and and he's thinking, how do I, how would I cash out this? How would I, how do I make sense of? I'm reading Luther and hearing from the Fed. Like, how do I make sense of this? I think that's what he was doing. All right, thank you. Um, so I think at this point in time, we're going to draw this session to a close, but this is only the first of several sessions, so you'll be getting more uh, emails coming out as we go forward. Uh, our next presenter set will certainly involve Christine Coy, who is here with us at the moment, uh, but we haven't fixed a date yet. We're waiting for our next visiting scholars to arrive to set that up, So, but there will be other opportunities going forward in the summer, but in the meantime, let's just take a moment to thank Amanda and Preston for their presentations today. It was just terrific. Thank you so much. And we wish everyone a good time and enjoy hopefully good weather wherever you are. And we will be in touch again soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank Bye you. now. Bye-bye.